Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Carol Darsa. She's an author and an executive director. She's also an accomplished uh, trauma psychologist. The book she authored is called The Trauma Map. She's founder of the Reconnect Center in Pacific Palisades, California, and creator of the Reconnect Integrative Trauma Treatment Model. So we're going to talk about what that means and her background. And Welcome, Carol. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and how you got to be involved with uh, trauma therapy. Sure. Been a psychologist for 25 years. From the very beginning, actually, my interest was always trauma. I worked first as a social worker because I wanted to work with kids. And as I had my own kids, I decided to work with adults. It just because I could see that childhood trauma is what was really impacting everyone. So I got all the trainings that that were available to become a trauma therapist. And that has been my passion, passion since then. So I started my own treatment center about 12 years ago. I worked at different rehabs and everything. So I saw that they were not really doing enough trauma work. There wasn't a place that just solely focused on trauma. That's sort of how I decided to open Reconnect a Trauma Treatment Center here in LA. Do a lot of our clients come in as children or do they come in years or decades later as adults, but the childhood trauma still would? Once their life. That's exactly right. Uh, I don't work with children anymore. We do work with teenagers, but I do work mostly with adults who unfortunately have never really dealt with their childhood traumas. And there are many of us who are dealing with that. I, I would say it's much more common than what people think. I don't know if this is accurate, but one time I thought, you know, as I go around and I talk to people, I'm interacting with everyone's trauma, you know, throughout my day. Not, not that the day is bad or I have bad interactions, but I don't think a lot of people realize, and again, this is my speculation that, you know, again, when you go out and about and you're talking to people, you're unknowingly interacting with, you know, their past trauma that has shaped them. So it caused, I guess, friction in relationships. That's for sure. Well, because we carry them and they're usually not addressed. People think trauma means something extreme, right? Like an earthquake survivor, war survivor, or sexual abuse survivors. But they don't realize that if they haven't had that, they could have also had trauma in different areas, especially relationship-oriented, right? So when you have had relationship trauma, then it's going to show up as an adult when you're relating to other people because they're going to remind you consciously and unconsciously of what happened in your childhood. So you're going to be very reactive to each other. Is there a certain age at which people tend to, um, you know, their trauma comes back out, even if they didn't know about it for years? Like, you know, is it at the midlife crisis, particular ages where this happens? That's a good question. You know, I've never noticed that. I don't think so. I think as soon as you hit adulthood, it could show up pretty in any time after 20 years old. Because in your childhood, there's some form of resiliency that's very natural. People, because you're playing, you're going to school, just kind of get distracted in a, in a positive way. But when you hit adulthood, because the adulthood responsibilities are also very stressful, under stress, definitely more traumatic symptoms will show up. Yeah, I would think that, you know, along with what you said, there's also a resiliency when you're or at least there used to be, uh, you know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, it seems to maybe give way a little bit. And 40s, 
it just seems like that's when like reality really, really hits you in every sense of the word for some reason. Like people have midlife crises and I think that's why like probably a lot of this stuff comes out maybe at that age. I don't know. Yes. What I notice in midlife crisis is more stress-oriented responses coming more than trauma necessarily. Well, also traumatic symptoms can show up when you become a parent because then you're in that role, right? And you're seeing your own child. So I have had many, many clients who, let's say they were abused at age, I don't know, five. And then when their own children turn five, they start feeling very activated and they don't even know why until we start making connection. Have you found that people will anchor literally to a specific age? What do you mean by that? Tell me again. Do you find people will anchor to a certain age? Like, um, let's say something happened to you when you were 32, you know, and now, oh, sorry, let's say something happened to your parent when they were like 41 or something, and now you're 41. Do people get triggered like that where literally the same numerical age will, for some reason, bother them because it happened at that literal age to like their parent? Yeah, it could definitely happen that way. We have strange memories, if you think about it, even with months. Let's say you had a trauma in the month of November years ago, and then when that date comes, you might find yourself depressed or upset or anxious again without really knowing why. So I don't even understand how our bodies do that, but it has some sort of a psychic uh, remembrance in that way. What are, are there typical responses people have when they come see you, or like what are the reasons they give when they come see you? Like, how does the trauma manifest in their life? Yeah, so there are people who come in and they're very, very cognizant of the reason why they're here is because they have a specific memory they want to work on. They know that they endured some form of trauma or abuse and they're hunted by it, right? Either in their nightmares or in their thoughts. And it's just very, very obvious, like sort of apple to apple connection, right? Let's say um, a sexual abuse, then they have difficulty forming a romantic relationship. That's a very uh, easy to sort of understand issue. But then there are other people who come in, they don't know that they have trauma, they're kind of suspecting, but they're most dealing with mood disorder. It either generalized anxiety or depression, or most commonly right now is dissociation, really feeling a sense of being out of their body, right? They feel like they're in a haze at all times. They can't concentrate. So, Why do people feel like so disconnected? Is it fasting that happens or does it take time? It does take time. Well, disconnection from self is actually a form of self-protection, if you think about it. When something is too much and we can't deal with the emotions, we start finding ways to cope with it, right? They're coping like drug and alcohol or other sort of addiction, but there's also coping as completely disconnecting from the feelings where you start going almost numb. But of course, everything has a side effect. So when they do that, they start feeling they're not grounded. They can't be present into the moment because they were trying to go away so much with their thoughts. They don't realize that even for other things, they're kind of checked out, right? So they come in for these reasons. And, and then as we start sifting through the details of what's happened, why they're feeling that way, they, they really have an understanding of how long they've been struggling with it or what caused it, which is really my job is to go to the root cause all of the symptoms. So people come in and they say they're not feeling themselves or like, what are some of the common things they say? How do they express their problem? They talk about really feeling unhappy or having panic attacks, feeling anxious all the time, the excessive worry, excessive thinking. That's a very common reason why people come in and say, I can't stop thinking. They report self-hatred. You can hear it in everything. They, they're not at peace with myself. I don't like myself. I can't stand my body or can't stand myself. Or really, I'm crying a lot. I'm depressed. I don't feel like doing anything. It's usually like sort of the sense of wanting to be alive is God. Doesn't necessarily mean that they want to die but they also don't want to live, right? So it's sort of being caught in, in between. And then obviously it shows up as I can't work. I took I have an absence from work now or I can't go to school. 
so many young students take one year off from college after being overwhelmed with things. And then there's a whole, I feel like I don't remember anything. I don't know where I am. I can't recognize myself. I go all the way to, I'm looking in the mirror and I see, I don't even know who I'm seeing in the mirror. I'm not sure who I am, right? These are sort of very common statements that people talk about. Yeah, sounds odd. How long do people wrestle with these problems before they see you typically? A long time, unfortunately. A long time. I wish people addressed sooner, but I think until people are really in crisis, they don't look for help. How long is long? Years? Months? Yeah. Decades? Well, both. <laughs> Years and decades, I would say. Most people are waiting a long time. I mean, some of my clients as young as, uh, like I said, teens or 18, which I always say, you're so lucky you came at such a young age, but I have clients is 70 years old as well. What have you noticed? Have people gotten more traumatized or more anxious over the past 10 years or so? Or like, what have you seen over the time you've been doing this? That's actually a good question too, because when I first opened my clinic 12 years ago, I realized the clients that were coming in had less severe symptoms. And now, especially I would say since COVID, the last three, four years, the symptoms are much more severe, really visibly. More people are struggling longer. It takes longer for them to recover. It's just sort of like more frequent. There's ongoing sense of unhappiness, unsatisfaction, and a generalized sense of anxiety that has definitely increased. Well, the statistics actually show that it increased more among young people, especially teens and young adults. But uh, you could see it with, you know, with older age, middle age as well. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. So how do you begin the process of helping someone when they first come in? Like, how do you get a lay of the land and figure out what's troubling them? We actually follow what's called a three-stage trauma treatment. So the first stage or the first phase is really about stabilization. So we are going into just what are your symptoms, education, right? We do a lot of education because you have to understand what's happening. When you understand what's happening, where it's coming from, it first of all helps with the judgments because most people come in feeling bad about themselves, thinking they should be doing better. So there's a lot of sort of self-blames, shame and self-hatred even. So we work with that. But then we start teaching tools, specific tools. How do you deal with anxiety? How do you do when you overreact to things? What do you do when you get angry? So there are very specific tools that not only they do it in sessions, but we give it as homework. It's a little bit like a muscle workout. The more you do it, the more you become proficient at it, right? And like you're building muscles for it. So we want to make sure that people start sort of calming down that their nervous system is less activated, it's less upsetting sense. Once we achieve that and they're practicing regularly and they seem more present, then we're going deeper, right? We're going to have to do now more emotional work, deeper work, if they're willing and they agree to it. We go into earlier experiences that cause these symptoms and we process them. And there are specific techniques that we're trained to do process. So it's not just talk anymore, but the specific techniques really directly target those memories. And so we work on those. And then the third phase is called integration. 
Like after we do the memory processing, then there's a sort of a sense of like, okay, there's some relief that happened. They have tools, they understood where it's coming from. And then how do they move on with their lives and how do they integrate everything that they learned and practice it on an ongoing basis? At what points do people tend to push back or shut down or say no? had enough, you know, wanted to stop. Yeah, it probably is when we start getting deeper, it becomes emotionally very difficult. And some people may not want to go forward. By the way, my philosophy, and that's an important thing for me to say, is never to push a person. I never do. It has to come from the person. They have to be willing. If they don't want to, they don't have to. They could still just learn the tools without really going deeper into it. And they could still have the successful outcomes, believe it or not. It's a little bit of a myth to believe that you have to really dig deeper or you have to really know the details of your trauma in order to heal. It's not as necessary as people think. Is there a point where people suddenly agree or is it just a gradual thing and all of a sudden they realize, wow, things are better? Definitely, it's a gradual thing. It's rarely sudden thing that happens because it's usually they're holding on to these negative emotions and patterns that they developed over the years as part of self-protection. So it's not easy to let go. You can't ask somebody to all of a sudden, okay, now you're ready to feel all your feelings. Let's go for it. You know, there's good. And they say, oh, I, I can do it. But when that time comes, there's sort of this internal protection mechanism that shows up and says, no way. I've been like hiding all my life. You're not going to make me feel everything now. So it has to be slow it has to be gentle and it's more successful that way actually because otherwise they can shut down again if you open them too fast you know if they feel something too much it could scare the person so gradual it's a little bit like weight loss you know how they say if you lose too fast you gain all of it back change your lifestyle and you're like one pound a week as opposed to one pound a day and you definitely you know have more success in maintaining ideal weight the same thing with mental health is what i found over the year what about common cognitive disorders? I read about this, you know, um, against rejection, minimizing or maximizing. I don't know the names of them, but how do they come into play in your, in your therapy? Like, you know, do you see them very commonly in everyone you talk to? Are there certain ones that are like uh, bellwethers for problems or for good things? What do you notice about them? Yeah. Well, so first of all, when you say cognitive disorders, I'm thinking more in terms of... Uh, distortions, I mean, not disorders, but like everyone hates me or, you know, everyone's looking at me, you know, it's your fault, it's not my fault, I'm projecting my own stuff under you, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, that happens a lot with any sort of mood disorder. Especially, I would think, for instance, with depression, everything becomes so black and white. It's all, everyone hates me, I hate myself, everything is all bad, right? Nothing, it's, there's no gray area. That's really related to the mood. But when you start working on the mood, both with therapy and sometimes with medication because it's necessary, you start seeing that the distortions organically start changing. You can challenge the cognitive processes, but if you don't also address the mood part and how it feels to be in the body and like kind of helping through the body just to challenge the thought, you might not have that much success. That's been my experience. I know cognitive behavioral therapy is is very supportive, but it's not sufficient in itself because the cognitive distortions are also signs often as a, of a trauma. If a child's heard all their lives how horrible they are in direct and indirect messages, and then they're adult and that's what they believe, you telling them, no, come on, look in the mirror, you're a good person, it's just not going to change it that much, right? They have to understand that that comes from a childhood hurt and they have to be able to actually experience and heal that hurt. They have to find some form of empathy through processing those feelings. When they are willing to do that, the distortions on its own change, and it's sort of an easier, gentler way to make it different. Well, what would be an example of that? I mean, you started to give one. So a kid is told, oh, you're sad, you're stupid, whatever, all your whole life. How could that matter? 
manifest when someone's an adult and how could they help themselves? Like, what could they recognize to start to undo that? You know, and I guess I'm asking you for like a, maybe like a generic avatar of someone you've spoken to or multiple someones that you can kind of piece together. Yeah, I can give you a case example. I have uh, this client who, when I first met him, he said, I'm just feeling depressed pretty much all the time. I have no desire to do anything and I'm in bed for hours and this and that. And I said, where, where's that coming from? Do you know? I have no idea. I think it's something I did wrong. Do you have trauma? No, I don't have trauma. Okay, so we continue working and it shows up. He has huge trauma. He's grown up with parents who were severely alcoholic. They drank daily and they were verbally abusive. They were not physically abusive, which is what was confusing to this client because people, again, think, unless it's something as severe as I was beaten every day, it's not trauma, which is completely untrue. If you have parents who are under the influence every evening, basically, and they're treating you like you don't matter, this is what you're going to believe. You're going to believe you don't matter, right? So the way I started working with him is actually to really do a lot of psychoeducation about what trauma is, what it does to you, because he didn't even know that it can affect you that much. He kept comparing himself to people with different stories. So once he understand that, it started kind of creating a sense of really validating his own feelings. So he went from, no, it's all my fault to Oh, wait, I understand. I'm reacting this way because of my trauma. My trauma is getting triggered, not because I'm a weak person, right? That's one of also the common misconceptions that people have about themselves. If I can't get over this depression, it's because I'm not strong enough, which is completely untrue. So as we worked on that and he started really understanding it, then we had to go deeper into the emotion. How did it feel really to grow up with alcoholic parents? And there's a lot of grief in there that children couldn't feel it at the time because they have to survive. So we got deeper into the emotions and he was able to start seeing how sad it was to grow up in that setting. And from there, he started actually accessing his anger, which is also sometimes healthy, right? Because depression is often anger turned inward, right? You hate yourself. But to be frank, he was upset with his parents for not taking care of him. So we started kind of channeling that in a healthy way, right? It's not, of course, about like fighting with your parents now, but it's about understanding what that anger is about and validating your experience. So that gradually started helping him to take the blame out of himself and into seeing it as, okay, this was a traumatic situation. I came to believe something that's not true. Now I can challenge it. I hope this example was helpful in giving my point. Yeah, no. So do a lot of people, they, they literally don't think that they've had any trauma. Do they forget? Are they just trying to... Uh... Say, no, no, I'm fine and, and hide that part of themselves from you? Or like, why do they say that? They minimize it and honestly, lack of education. Like I said, people think it has to be something extremely severe on a physical level to be considered trauma, but it is really not. Definition of trauma is anything that threatens your well-being and emotional, physical, sexual well-being. But it's also emotional trauma is actually often even worse than the physical trauma. Because with the physical trauma, you can say, here, look, they punched me. I have a bruise on my face, so I have all the right to be upset, right? But when you don't have a physical proof and you're just felt in a way emotionally punched, you can't show it. So people don't see it and they don't empathize with you and you don't even understand where it's coming from. It's even more confusing and doesn't create the empathy that one needs to do with it. So that's the reason why I actually wrote my book, The Trauma Map, because I wanted people to really understand what trauma means so that they can stop blaming themselves. What about men versus women? Like, yeah, I know from, um, I, I know someone that worked with people that have arthritis, for instance, and he said, uh, you know, men tend to get angry 
they're not able to do something physically and women get sad. So like, in response to trauma, is there a more a common response for women versus men or does it depend on the trauma, the situation? In general, actually, I would agree with what you just said, that men tend to be more in the angry state and women tends to sort of internalize it more because for men to be angry, the society is more accepting of it. If they're depressed or or something, it's considered more of like a feminine feeling, and you know how boys don't cry. You know all these messages that they're they're given, unfortunately, makes them feel like it's not okay for them. And then women sometimes, if they're angry, then they're called you know aggressive or the b word, which I don't want to say. And so in some way, that's not accepted. So I think trauma definitely does the same thing as well. But of course, this is a very general statement. If you go into individuality, you will see that many people have a combination of that. Have you seen commonalities along ethnic lines, for instance? You know, people from Europe, that first generation here, second generation, do they experience you know the trauma very differently than people that have been here from multiple generations, for instance? Yes, definitely. The closer you are to the generation of the trauma, the more impacted you are, like in the Holocaust. So the first generation of the survivors that came, building of the first generation survivors, definitely came from parents who were still traumatized, even though many of them that I know, they don't talk about what happened in Holocaust because they want to forget about it. But even if you don't talk about it, it's just felt. The feeling of it is there. So that first generation is impacted in that way because they sense the trauma. And then the second generation hopefully is a little better. So it does get better as each generation tries to repair themselves psychologically in some way. What is your, what's the focus of your book? What, why is it called The Trauma Map? And what are you hoping to show people that read it? It's a self-help book. And I wrote it in a very simple, plain language on purpose. This is directly for general population, you know, in layman's language, everything is written in that way. Because when people are traumatized, they have difficulty often to understand things and concentrate. So I didn't want to write something that was too academic oriented. I really wanted to give education. That was my first goal. And the second goal was to give specific tools. So that's the reason actually why it's called the map, because it has sort of five steps to follow. I talk about five ways that we disconnect from ourselves when we have trauma and how then to find ways, specific tools for each area, how to reconnect to ourselves. If you want, I can tell you what those five things are in a brief way. Yeah, go ahead, yes. So the first one is disconnecting from the head, right, from our thoughts. The second one is disconnecting from our heart, from our emotions. The third one is disconnecting from our body. So these are the three internal disconnection that we can we might experience. And the other two is really disconnection from outside, either from other people, community, you know, relationship. And the fifth one is sort of a bigger picture. It could be spirituality, nature, God, religion, whatever that uh, the person believes in. So I look at every or, you know, each department in some way and see how it shows up, sort of the symptoms that you have disconnection in these areas. And then I give very specific tools of how to work on those. But my whole goal is to really help the person to come back to their whole self. I don't know it varies, but how long does this process take? If the person's committed, if they do their homework, if they show up, et cetera, like what, is there a range or a ballpark? Like how long it takes? No, I wish I could say that. The more trauma you had as a child or growing up, the harder it's going to be. So it completely depends on if you at least, for instance, had one good, solid adult presence in your life, you're more likely to succeed faster and sooner 
because we all need that. But if you didn't have anyone, it does take longer. So now then you have to learn to really build that safety internally yourself or find somebody else that can help you with it. I wish I could give you a time frame. If you also have, in addition to any of these issues, if you have drug or alcohol problems and dealing with addiction, that delays it too. But I am a strong believer everything is a workable issue. As long as the person understands and has realistic expectations and doesn't give up on themselves, I do believe anything can be worked on. Okay. No, that's good. What are some areas of the therapy and the trauma that you feel like still need work to make them better? Like, are there, are there certain people you just can't help? And is it because of the person themselves or because the, there's still tools that are lacking to help certain people? I think it's a lot to do with willingness. I do strongly believe in that. We don't realize, but uh, some negative feelings or being caught up in the past could be also addictive. If you've never processed it before, then no, you have to process it. But for some people, even after it's processed, they still have a hard time to get out of it because it's familiar. And even though it's painful, a lot of people actually prefer to stay in the familiar painful state rather than moving on. So that's one way of I'm looking at the willingness. But the second way of the willingness is really that it requires discipline to work on it. As I was saying earlier, it's like going to the gym, building muscles. You can't go to the gym I don't know, just one month in your entire life and say, hey, how come I don't have muscles? Like years later, you know, it's just going to go away. Mental health is really like that. And that's where I think people are failing. They go and look at it only when things are in crisis. They work on themselves. When the crisis is over, they let go. And then they don't realize, but the stress of life never ends and things can get re-triggered. And next thing you know, they're back in the crisis again. So my suggestion is work on yourself, but continue to work regularly. Have a routine, a daily routine between meditation, grounding practice, heart math, yoga, journaling, writing your emotions out, or having maybe once a week somebody that you can talk to regularly so that the continuous effort is always there. Any new frontiers in you know trauma therapy that, that you're working on and you think you know, you're looking forward to some development in or... Do you feel like you have most of the tools to be able to help people today? I think we are always needing more tools because things take really long time. But in the last 10, 15 years, the most important development in trauma treatment has been about somatic therapy, which means body-oriented therapies. Before, it, they used to believe only about if you talk about it and if you remember what happened, you're healed. But now they're seeing that that's not enough and that you have to really include the body in your treatment because our bodies remember things, not just only our minds. In fact, many times our bodies remember even more than what the mind remembers. So somatic therapies help you to you know, process that. Any form of uh, help that brings your attention to here and now, which is again mindfulness, but if it's done especially with somatic oriented, it's even more helpful. Yeah, I remember there was a book, The Body Keeps the Score, which was very good. I guess the Dutch guy, Van Der Week or something. So what is the somatic therapy? What do you stand or sit or lay or move into different positions while you do therapy or that is the somatic help? No, it actually almost looks like a talk therapy, but uh, you're really including the body sensations instead of just emotional feelings. For instance, if you're going through something difficult like your dog died, a normal therapist would ask you, how do you feel when you talk about your dog? And you could say sadness or whatever, right? But a somatic therapist will ask the same question from a different angle, which will be, what do you notice in your body as you talk about 
your dog. And then you can say, I have some tightness in my stomach, or I feel like my heart is beating faster, or my jaw is clenching. And then so instead of going through the emotions and talking about it, we go actually through the physical sensations so that we can help the person release the tightness and the sensations, the holding on to the memory that happens often in the body gets sort of released that way. Sometimes it has some movement as well, such as if you have been, for instance, physically abused, your body could have gotten into a freeze response where you're not moving. But if you do certain movement, you can kind of unfreeze that and release the memory that way. And the most important thing is really being grounded because as I was saying earlier, trauma can create a disconnect, take you out of your body, which means you're not really paying attention to your body anymore and you don't even sometimes feel it in the more extreme versions of it. So we help people to come back into their body, sense their body, and that helps reduce the thinking. You know, we had really the illness of overthinking right now. The more computerized we became, the more in our thoughts we are. We're thinking all day, going around and around in circles. So when you help a person to start noticing the sensations in their body, like even now, when you're listening to me, you can pay attention to your feet, pay attention to your back, to your legs. And that kind of starts slowing the thinking, the negative thoughts down a lot. That's what we're finding. You mean when you have negative thoughts, you pay attention to how your body feels? And let's say, I don't know, when I think of firemen or something, you know, my chest gets tight. Or like you said, your, your dog died, your chest gets tight. How would a somatic therapist help you? Like, okay, I, I feel this tightness when I think about the dog that passed away. What, what do you do about it? You just acknowledge it, but what do you do to release that tightness? Yeah, on your own, you'll have a little bit of a harder time to do it. So a therapist has to guide you. But on your own, what you can do is you can notice it and stay with it. Because what we normally do is we run away from it. As soon as we feel it, we go, oh, this feels too much. I got to go. And what we do is we go back into our heads and we try to distract it. And that often doesn't help either because then that feeling never gets processed. And all feelings have to get processed, to be honest, in order to heal it. Because there is no such a thing as putting something aside. It just stays there. We just don't know it, right? So you notice it, you take a minute. If you don't get afraid and if you just accept, you can even, let's say, put your hand on your chest. Just kind of send empathy and understanding to that negative feeling that you're sensing in your body. And then you can start also noticing what part of your body, what other part of your body feel a little bit better. Because whenever we have tightness somewhere, another part of the body might actually feel better. We just don't know it. We just don't pay attention to it. So then we can say, oh, you know what? You're right. Actually, my legs feel better or, or feel stronger on the ground. Or I can feel my feet, you know, feeling sort of planted onto the sole. You can take your shoes and really feel connection to the earth. And then you start noticing more of the positive sensations in the body. A couple of minutes later, when you do that, you can go back to the tight area and you'll see it often starts actually decreasing. And then you can go back and forth, noticing the tightness for a second, acknowledging it, showing some empathy for yourself, then going back into the positive sensations in your body. And this eventually starts decreasing it. Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you. I guess, you know, last couple of items. Uh, for people that are going to listen to this and seek therapy, you know, either from you or someone else or whatever, or read the book. What kinds of things do you see people do or allow to happen that gets in the way of them healing themselves or getting help to heal themselves or even when they're getting help from a practitioner, not letting it help them? Like how do people sabotage themselves or, you know, not go through this process properly? I think the fear, fear in general, fear that they're going to discover something they don't want to discover often stops people from going in. Fear that they're not going to like what they find out about themselves, right? Fear of feelings 
That's a very common one. They say, if I start crying now, I'm afraid I'm never going to be able to stop crying. It's almost like a fear of dying from feeling, right? They're afraid they're going to be overwhelmed with everything that comes forward. And then they say, no, I prefer not to feel anything. I'll just, uh, I'll, I don't know, I'll just go out with my friends or I'll, I'll just drink tonight and I'll forget everything. Again, that has a huge side effects. So if they can overcome the fear of looking in, the fear of being silent with emotions, the fear of validating what's happened, they can actually move forward. I noticed that most of the time, the anticipation of something is worse than the actuality. So actually, when we are finally able to face our feelings and or the memories, we don't feel as bad as we think. And there's really sort of a light at the end of the tunnel when we allow ourselves to go through it. Do you think, you know, therapists like yourself become traumatized by, by talking to so many people that have trauma? Like, do you affect you negatively or has it helped you to be more at peace with yourself in your life? I think it can do both. As a therapist, first of all, we have to take care of ourselves even more than the clients. Otherwise, you're right, we can't help. It's not that it traumat it can traumatize us, but it can overwhelm or stress us further, which is why there's a lot of burnout in my field. I actually now colleagues who quit being therapists, and one of them is a realtor doing real estate, the other one opened a travel agency. I mean, it does get to that point, you know? Like, do you feel like everyone's messed up sometimes or... Like what, I hope it's not too personal, but as a therapist, like how does it affect you, the therapist, to hear these stories all day long? The stories itself is, well, I have been working on myself for so long. That's the reason why I'm able to do it. I'm not impacted by their stories. I'm going to be frank, but it's not for, it, not everyone says that. I have my own grounding practice. I have my own things. I'm actually going on a meditation retreat next week on Monday. I do something once a year where I'm just solely focusing on myself. So that really does help. And I had my own therapy for many, many years and I go in and out of it so that I have somebody else to process it with. So this way I can stay sane. And I do that because not only for me, but I want to be able to help people. And so I see it as my duty to take care of myself. But it can be very stressful for sure. For, but everybody has a different reaction. Some people say, oh God, I could never do trauma work. For me, the difficult thing is to work with depressed people, for instance, because it's, their energy is so low, they're so unhappy that I have to really keep up my energy strong and my joy up. But it's contagious. You have to be careful. Yeah, I mean, do therapists go to therapists? And if so, are they a special kind of therapist? <laughs> no, uh, they should. Some of them don't. But I recommend for everyone to have somebody else that they can talk to once a week. It doesn't have to be too many times. I actually love it because, you know, I listen to other people all day and finally I have one hour. It's all about me. <laughs> it feels good. That's hilarious. I guess last question. What is the most difficult thing for you to deal with in, with somebody? Like, I guess you hinted at it, you know, depression is hard because of the low energy level. But are there um, any cognitive distortions that make it very difficult for you to work with somebody? Or is it just generally if... Um, you know, if someone's not cooperative, you're like, okay. Yes. This is, again, a personal answer because it will depend from therapist to therapist. For me, probably even harder than the depression difficulty is when clients get angry at me. And that's actually, we call that projection. They're not angry at me because necessarily I did something, but I usually represent someone for them, especially because I own a trauma treatment center. I have staff, so I'm sort of, you know, I'm the boss. So if they had any issues with authority figures in their lives, including even parents, teachers, I don't know, anyone, that comes out at me because I have to put certain rules and boundaries, right? Or there's payment that has to happen on a, or there's a cancellation policies and things like this. So people get angry when you put boundaries because they're not used to it. Or you remind them of somebody they didn't like in the past. But those are the ones that are, I would say, more tiring and have to really address it with a lot of empathy and show them that, it's not that so much of what you did, but that I'm reminding them of someone. And that's a hard one for them to understand. 
Okay. Well, very good, Carol. So if you can, let's restate the name of your book. And I guess it's available on Amazon and everywhere you can get books. And you know, tell the listeners the name of your book and where it can be gotten. Sure. It's The Trauma Map, Five Steps to Reconnect with Yourself. And you can definitely have it on Amazon. There's also the audiobook. You have a good voice, so it's nice to hear uh, something read in your voice. You know? Thank you. I Because I have an accent, uh, having been here from Europe, I didn't want somebody else who didn't have an accent read the book. So I said, you know, I will read it. That's what I did. Well, that's good. Excellent. For listeners that want to get help, where do you serve people? Like all over the U.S. or just local to you? You know, Do you do telehealth or do you have, they have to come in? Like, Where can people go to get help from you or your center? Yeah, so my center is in uh, Los Angeles County, the city of Pacific Palisades, California. Unfortunately, the law is very, very strict about we can't do therapy for anybody who's outside of California because the licensing doesn't work anywhere else. Don't ask me why it's like this, but it's like this. Government cognitive distortion, that's what. Exactly. They think if you live in Nevada or Florida, I can't help you. I have no idea why. Drives me crazy. Our program is intensive therapy. We do anywhere from three to five hours a day, three to five times a week. And it's, it's integrative. It's not just psychotherapy. There's yoga, massage, movement, art therapy, neurofeedback, everything. So we do everything in person now. We don't do online anymore. Oh, wow. I'm available for consultations and stuff like that as well, both for therapists or sometimes people just call me because they want guidance of Here's something like for guidance kind of things. I can talk to some people even out of state, but I cannot do uh, ongoing telehealth. Okay. Well, very good, Carol. It's been a really great call. And thank you for coming on the podcast. And, you know, if listeners are interested, I encourage them to get your book and look up your center and, uh, you know, go from there. So thank you, Carol. Thank you for inviting me again. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.